that tonight we're going to have Christmas candlelight communion. It's a great way to start out December to worship Christ tonight at 6 p.m. And I may not have mentioned also that we'll have a brief fellowship afterwards. Uh, it's not a very long service, but it's a very significant one. It's a great way to begin worship of Christ in the season, and I think you'll find it very special to gather together and finish off with some hints, some carols to Christ by candlelight. So I encourage you to be a part of that tonight. Invite <coughs> friends and family. A lot of folks haven't been able to gather together to sing carols to Christ, uh, but tonight you will. This morning I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John and chapter 14. We'll be picking up at verse 15. John 14 and we'll read all the way to verse 31. I found this to be challenging this section here in preparing to preach a sermon today on this text. Often in John, up until these chapters, it's been much of a narrative, a, a storyline. We can explain what's going on and then apply the lessons intended by the author. Here, chapter 14 through 17 is a bit different in that it's John's recording of Jesus' teaching to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. He's going to give some significant lessons to his disciples, which are also applicable to all who would follow Jesus Christ, even you today. John 17, 20, for example, looking ahead, where's Jesus' prayer? I don't ask for these only, but for all who will, who will believe in me through their word. So he's equipping them to preach the gospel ultimately to you if you have heard and responded and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This section of teaching then is for the disciples, all disciples, for you. Now remember this section here though is not all that Jesus said. It is not all that Jesus did. John will remind us that in later in his gospel chapter 21 where he says now there are many other things that Jesus did and were every one of them written I suppose the world itself couldn't contain the books that were written. They were profound and great volumes of teaching that Christ gave. But these things John recorded specifically are for us, and these are inspired teaching that indeed we would see Christ, to know who he is. These are then excerpts, is why I say, of his teaching to his disciples. They are those things that are sufficient and those things that are necessary even for the believer today. But this section I find difficult for me as I go through it. And I don't know, particularly just the way I think, maybe influenced by Western thought, if you will. But I'm more inclined to at least learn in a linear fashion and certainly teach that way. I know some, perhaps that are much younger than me, are used to more of a mosaic presentation, if you will, but not me. I'm 
go from point A to point B to C and come with some sort of conclusion. And that's kind of how I would model my sermon. But that doesn't fit that well in this section in particular. I find it a bit challenging. Now, Paul's didactic teaching in the epistles follow much more in a linear fashion. But here, and as well as if you read John's epistles, they're much more in, in a circular fashion in the sense of like concentric circles, not circular reasoning, but it's going from one topic to another topic to another topic and then coming back to the original one and giving it in a different light, uh, expanding upon it, and so forth. So to juggle that many thoughts and ideas at one time uh, is difficult for me. I I have a tendency to have much more of a one-track mind. In any case, this may very well be a model of exactly how Jesus taught as well. And I do think it's helpful to go back over things uh, again and again. This is kind of the pattern of what's going on. In fact, if you're looking at the text here in chapter 14, notice, and I've said this before, it begins with, I mean, the whole chapter here, let your hearts... Let not your hearts be troubled, in verse 1. But then look down to verse 27. It says the same thing. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then it adds to that, neither let it be afraid. So an expansion, but it's the same idea. He's circling back around to the same concept. In the next few chapters, you're going to hear, as this begins, something talking about the Holy Spirit. It's going to be repeated, this theme, in chapters 15 and 16 as well. Chapter 15, verse 26, for example, when the helper comes, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And chapter 16, verse 7, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come. So he's adding to and going back to some of the similar ideas that have been mentioned. Again, I think this is certainly representative of how John taught, and perhaps he learned this directly from Jesus Christ. He's circling back around recurring themes that are of great importance. This little section that I have, why don't you see if you can identify a few of them as I read the text, beginning in verse 15 of John chapter 14. Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in, the fa- in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas 
not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever doesn't love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you why I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father commanded me. And so the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we will hear and heed the words of Christ this day. May they be food for the souls of your saints. And life to those who are in rebellion against you. Who are dead. Who need to be made alive. Quicken their hearts even this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now there are many themes I hope you've noticed in this text quite a bit. It is challenging to organize them in such a way as I'm custom to do, so I'll do just that and skip around a little bit. I think it's easier for me to be able to present. One of the things we try to do is do two things. One, explain the text, which is profound, and then expand upon it a little bit in the sense that we tie in other scripture so that you could recognize that this explanation is consistent with what the apostles taught. And then expound upon it as far as application, which then becomes self-evident. theme I'd like to focus on is really that which this text begins, the section that I read. Verse 15 is a bold statement, and I want you to note it. Think about it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is directed to whom? The disciples. Those that are already regenerate, remember, Judas is gone. Judas Iscariot is gone. So when another Judas is brought up, they have to identify, oh, this is not Iscariot. Be sure to know, this is just the disciples, the believers. And here is the challenge and the charge. Remember, it's not just to them, but anybody who would follow Christ. Here's the charge. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice how this is repeated in a different way in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
And then circling around for a third time, now you get the idea here. I hope you notice that. Verse 24, whoever, this is the negative of this, whoever does not love me does not keep my word. Essentially saying the same kind of concept, three different ways. The love for Christ is exemplified in keeping his commandments. Notice verse 15, the first one. If you love me, the text says. And here I'm going to be a little technical. So Fallujah, that's okay. You can join me at the end. I just want to say this just so that you can grasp what this is intending to say. The technicality of the original translation here is very helpful. Helpful to explain this this phrase here, if you love me. This is written in the, there's really only two words, but it's written in the subjunctive mood, which that's where we get the idea of, of if. It's really grammatically what they would call technically a third class conditional clause where this verb is in the subjunctive and the word that precedes it, aeon, is an adverbial conjunction, if you will. What, what, is, what am I saying all this for? Because technically what this means is this if you love me, this is a universal statement. That's what that grammatical construction is for in the original. It's hard to translate in English, I guess, to some degree, although I would think that if you just said those that love me would be fine. But the whole point is this is an axiomatic statement that is always true. That's what he's saying. It's not conditioned on anything. This is a truth without exception. That's what it's saying. Those that love Christ will keep his commandment. This is like saying water is wet. You know, you don't need to footnote that if you're writing an article because that's a universal truth. We know that. We know what wetness is, and we know that water happens to be wet. Well, that's the idea given here. Disciples love Christ. You wouldn't be a disciple if you didn't love Christ. And disciples obey Christ. They go together, love and obedience. So the point, obviously, by application here, clearly would be, don't claim that you love Jesus and you rebel against him. It's not talking about a single moment in time. We'll get to Peter eventually when he does. But ultimately, the direction of a life for someone who is in Christ, someone who loves Christ, and who would that be? A disciple. Or another term for disciple is a Christian. A Christian obeys Christ. Don't take my word on it. Let's let Jesus expand on it. Turn to Luke chapter 6, and we'll begin in verse 43. Luke 6, 43. Here, Jesus is explaining that many claim to love him. Many claim to be his disciples. He sent many away. And he teaches them by way of illustration. Two of them are used here. One of a tree and one of a house. Note the text, Luke 6, 
and we'll just begin at verse 43. <clears throat> he describes this condition of a disciple, someone who loves Christ, this way, like a tree. He says, for no good tree, 643 in Luke, bears bad fruit, nor again does bad tree bear good fruit. By the contrary, each tree is known by its fruit. What is this fruit? What it produces. What it does. Then he gives a further illustration of this. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. That's a great illustration. Oh yeah, you can stick a fig there and you can stick a grape there, but it isn't the fruit of that vine. That's his point. You see that. And then he explains his illustration, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The heart there, too, again, is emphasized in his soul, his immaterial being, primarily his mind. The good, we know how they're made good. They're regenerate. They've been born again. Otherwise, they're in this state described as evil. As Paul would describe a son of disobedience. That's our natural state. And Christ, when he changes the heart, changes the mind that now has a desire to obey Christ. It's a distinction. In fact, he will say that in verse 36. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that he is your what? Sovereign master. That you will obey him, of course. You wouldn't say Jesus is Lord unless you desire to obey him. To obey his commandments. And here, it's repeated twice. And these folks think, oh, I really love Jesus. Do you? Obey him. Everyone, verse 47, who comes to me and hears my word and does them, then I'll show what he is like. Okay, well, what is it like for someone who, who does? Truly confess Jesus as Lord and demonstrates that in obedience. Well, here's what he's like, and this is his second illustration, verse 48. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood rose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, he's like a man who's built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Two different illustrations communicating the same thing. And those that confess Jesus Christ as Lord will be built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and they will never fail and they will never fall ultimately, continually. That's the point. Because the love of Christ is what will cause them to endure. And so our expression of, oh, 
well, I love Jesus. Oh, how I love him. You can measure it by your submission to his sovereign will, to his sovereign word. Now, when we speak of the word love here, loving Christ, I often, when I think about love and want to describe it to you, will turn to 1 Corinthians 13. It's a great definition of love. We'll not turn there, but I'll just review it briefly. Love is what? Patient and kind. And I've described those two aspects as, as grace and mercy. And that's a great way to think about love for people, one another. We don't give them what they deserve. We give them mercy instead. And we give them something without expecting anything in return. That is grace. Kindness. Patience. But how does this then expression of love, how would this relate to our relationship to Christ? When we say, oh, well, I love him. He doesn't need grace. <laughs> he doesn't need mercy. But that doesn't encompass all that love is. That's just two major aspects of it for us in dealing with our relationship with one another. But towards God, it is he who expresses grace towards us, his love. It is he who expresses his mercy to us, right, his love. But how do we express then our love to him? Submission to his will. Submission to his word. Obedience. If you read further in 1 Corinthians 13 in describing love, then Paul will go, continue on and tell other things about love. And one of the phrases there in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 13, you can jot it down and look it up later. But there's this phrase to describe, further describe aspects of love. It doesn't insist on its own way. <laughs> it's pointing to an aspect of love which is Submission. Submission in ways that are appropriate to your various relationships, whether it's human or divine. The essence of rebellion is, I will have it my way. I want to do it my way. That's the heart of disobedience. I know better. You said this, but I would rather do that. That is an act of rebellion. It is not love. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Rebellion is like a little child whose parents tell this child to do something and the child will not do it. And there are times in which the parent must step in and stop the child in its rebellion because the ends of that will lead to death, sometimes literally. <laughs> they try to go across the road when it's not time to cross the road. And you'll see a parent dive after the child, whatever they have to do, even if they cause injury to this child at this time because they are not going to let this child down the way or path of destruction. And beloved, God will do it with his people as well. There is a way, Solomon said, that seems right 
unto a man. That is from our own perspective. Oh, we can see it in the little child, but now we're grown up and we know better. There is a way that seems right, but its end is destruction. And the sovereign Lord of Jesus Christ who would give commands does so in love. He does so to save his people. It is Jesus in our text here in John 14 who said that, what? I am the way. What kind of way, John 14, 6? The way of truth. The way of life. Listen to him. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. Well, what are the commandments of Jesus Christ? Everything. Everything right here. From the beginning to the end, that's his commandments. I'll just read you a text review to get through quickly. Jesus in his teaching They asked him about marriage. And he would say in Matthew chapter 19, Haven't you read from the beginning that God created them, male and female? And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. He's talking about the beginning of the human soul. It's the creation of God. He's talking about, and I didn't think I'd ever have to teach on this. I think this would be axiomatic, that there is male and female, and that's it. That's Jesus teaching that. That it it would be the male who is going to leave his mama, which is a good thing, go find him a wife, and establish a new home. This is why even in our tradition, typically, the wife will take the name of the husband. Because they become one flesh. That's the point. That they would get married and not shack up together. That there would be a true union in that relationship. That it would be complementary. They would do different tasks as God has designed them. Different in their function in this terrestrial world. Male and female. And what God has put together let no one separate. That's Jesus' teaching. I could go on. Jesus would quote the Old Testament. He would quote the Old Testament law when someone asked him, what do I need to do to, to, to be good? And he said, keep it all. That's, they haven't been abrogated in that sense, in the sense that they're a reflection of God's moral law. What All that it had said about what God hates, he still hates. And what he loves, he still loves. None of that has changed. So whatever his commandments, it's all of his word. Oh, there are certain rituals that are supposed to be done at certain dispensations for sure. 
But I'm talking about his, his moral law. All the way from the beginning to the end. All of these are Christ's command. And if you love him, you will obey his commandments. Don't call him Lord and not do what he says. And the church needs to be called out on that. I'm talking about the evangelical church. Oh, it isn't that, they, that you could fail in any one of these areas. Of course you can. But you call people to repent and trust Christ and be restored to his body, not continue in their sin, not continue to their path of destruction. What kind of father would allow his children to play on a busy street in the middle of traffic? Of course not. Jesus gives a new command in chapter 13. We went over that. He said that you should just love one another. That part wasn't new. That's part of the Old Testament. But as I have loved you, as I have demonstrated, as I have loved you faithfully to the end even now. Well, that's a high calling. How will that be accomplished? We'll talk about that actually in two weeks when I'll be back. It's through the Holy Spirit and it's right here in the text, isn't it? It's through the power of God. It is through Christ Jesus our Lord. He will work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So if you love Christ, keep his commands. Follow his word. Why? Well, that's because it demonstrates that you love him. Verse 21 in our text and two things to get from that. One, I would say, is assurance for yourself that you truly are a disciple. And two, that you can display that to the world in which you live. Verse 21, whoever has, note, phrased a little differently, whoever has my commandments, I'm in 1421, and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. Keep your finger there. And because John himself expands upon this a little bit in 1 John chapter 2. I love how he begins this, the little children. John's an old guy. He, he's, he's about to go off to be with Christ. And he looks at his congregation and thinks of them as children in that sense. He, he wants to give them the wisdom that Christ has given him. Th this is the one that was in the upper room. And now he's writing an epistle to his beloved flock. He said, I'm writing this, why? So that you don't sin. I don't want you to disobey Christ. But you know what? If you do, don't forget that we have an advocate with the Father. That's the idea of, of even the Holy Spirit to be an advocate. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous himself. He is our advocate. He is, and it next verse says he is the, I can't get past, this is not the text I wanted to focus on, but I can't get past. He is the what? Propitiation for our sins. That is the payment, the covering for our sin. It is Jesus Christ our Lord, and not only ours only in this congregation that he was speaking to, but for the sins of the whole world. That is, everyone who has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, their sins are covered. You know who that is? That's you. If you're in the world, right? He's looking 
future as well. And then here's what I want to get to in verse 3. Look at it closely. And by this, we, have know, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He said, well, he seems like a good person, a nice person. He says a lot of nice things, seems spiritual. Here's what John would say, children. He's a liar. The truth isn't in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That is, it is matured. It is demonstrated in the life. And it is by this we may know that we are in him. That's his point. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Because why? This is what Christ has called. And see what he's driving at is, listen, if there is something inside of you that wants you to repent and return to Christ... If there's something inside of you that wants to see and savor his word, to find his will and walk in it, beloved, that can be a great assurance for your soul. Do you love Christ? What are the affections of your heart? Or do you just want your own way about stuff? It says he has, back to our text, John's saying this, this is a way you can know this. We can come to know this by the direction of our heart. Back to chapter 14, it says, whoever has my commandments, those commandments, as John describes as knowledge in 1 John chapter 2, this is possessed by those that are Regenerate. It's, it's not just that they know where the text is. It, they, they have it in their heart. They, they know what Christ has taught them. It is the Holy Spirit. He'll discuss later here in our text, which I'll unpack next time. But, it, but that will make these things known. This is a knowledge through his word. Not just information. But knowledge in an intimate relationship. An inward disposition to grow. The psalmist would put it this way. Oh, how I love your law. Really? Have you got driven down this road, see the stop sign and said, Oh, Chattanooga, how I love that law. <laughs> no, I, I better stop if cops look and they'll give me a ticket. See, this is a different response to law, isn't it? It's love. It's a love for God. To know every rule he has is not arbitrary. There's a purpose for it. It is for your life to live. Those that have it, who know it, who, who savor it, who want to know his law, they keep them. Our text says he, he keeps them. He keeps them not in the perfection of, oh, okay, I've always done this without any transgression. Of course not. John has already explained that. If you say you have no sin, you're, you're a liar. You don't keep him perfectly. But it's a disposition to want to follow Christ. To want to be restored to his fellowship and repentance. 
In chapter 21, we'll get into that later, but you, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with that. It's the restoration of Peter to ministry. He thought he was washed up. He denied Christ. How would Christ ever let him back in? Because he never got out. <laughs> he was always in the hand of Christ, whose hand is in the hand of God. He would never let him go. He would just simply remind him, Peter, do you want to stop denying me in your life? Here's how to do it. Do you love me? And he repeats this more than once. Do you love me? Do you love me? And what does he tell Peter to do? Feed his sheep. Tend his flock. Do what I tell you to do. Love is an inward disposition to obey. Obedience from love is stronger than any thing that could cause you to conform to the legal aspects of the law. Love for Christ is not us coming up with a list of things for you to comply to. You know what they are. There's no do's and don'ts, if you will, for us to sit there and run a tally every day. Here's the question. Do you love Christ? I've thought about this in my own life. By God's grace, I'm about to experience 36 years with one woman. The woman that I've, the only woman I've ever known. That's because God's gracious and he's merciful to me. Not because of my goodness. But I wonder sometimes why we stayed together for so long. And as I thought about it, really, my, other than the grace of God in Christ, of course, but in a practical matter, and it relates to this, it would be, I really think my love for my wife is stronger than my lust for sin. Oh, I'm tempted like any other person, but I don't want to cause her shame. I'd hate for her to have to hear of infidelity on my part. I'd hate for the church to hear it. I'd hate for my friends to hear it. I don't want to bring shame because I love her. I love you. But the greatest one is Christ. I could trick other people. I could hide from them. But I can't hide from Christ. He knows exactly what my thoughts are and what my doings are. And the love for Christ, beloved, is what compels anyone who is a follower of him. You're having struggle in your life. Maybe you're a challenging situation. You're wanting to walk down the wrong side of the street, if you will, to go the wrong way, to disobey him. You know what the answer really is, ultimately? More love to Christ. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. 
More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Try it sometime. Bend your knee and pray. He'll provide grace, love, in the time of need. Second aspect of this, I don't think I'll ever finish this, but we'll see. No, I'm not going to finish this. Wow. I go off script occasionally. Back to chapter 14 and verse 21. Beloved, if if you sense the direction of your heart, that will give you assurance of your love for Christ. If you have an inward desire to obey his will. Okay? Second thing is, this will be a great witness to the world at large. In 21, it says, this person who, who, who has his commandments, in other words, you, you, you have them in your heart, you know them, and then therefore you, you keep them. It's, it's that person, he says, it is he who loves me. Our love for Christ is, is demonstrated in our obedience, not for obedience's sake, but to make him look good. That's what we mean by glorify him. Paul would talk about the grace that he received to proclaim to the church at Rome in verse 5 of chapter 1. He said, we've been given this apostleship. We've been sent by Christ to preach to the nations. We've received this grace to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. That's what it's about. It's that the name of Christ would be exalted. If I didn't have Christ in my life, you can imagine what kind of person I would be. We don't want to imagine that. It's bad enough like it is. (laughs) But if you saw me without Christ, it would be a lot worse. This... Conforming to Christ brings about fame to his name, if you will. His name then is exalted. That's what the gospel is for, to to preach the name of Christ for the obedience of his people. In chapter 14, look back to 13. We've already preached on this message, but I want to focus on one aspect of what Jesus said in his new commandment. 1334, he says his new commandment. That you should do what? Love one another. How? This is for the disciples to love one another within the body of Christ. How? By him. His model. And what's the result? Verse 35. And that's what I focus on. By this, what? All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This love for Christ redounds in our love for one another and it becomes a witness to the world. All people, both Christians and non-Christians, both disciples and non-disciples. And I'll read this for you. John said in his epistle, chapter 4, 1 John, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. That's the basis for our love for one another is God's love. 
But then he goes on. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What is he saying? God's a spirit. You're not going to see him. They saw Christ. He was physically there, incarnate in a being. But he's gone to the Father. And he's left them. To do what? To be Christ in the world. How are they going to see Christ? Are we, are we going to get a picture of him, a portrait, painting? No, that would be making an image of God. We're not doing that. So how are they going to see Christ in the world? It's through his people. It's through his saints. Love for one another, it is perfected in us. It's a great witness. The church then is the visible body of Christ. He is going away, but he will not leave this world without a witness. It is those who love Christ and keep his commandments. Let us pray. Father, indeed I pray by your power, regenerating our heart to give us a new disposition and empowering us by the Holy Spirit to indeed put to death the deeds of the flesh that we might follow Christ. I do pray for that our love for Christ would be enhanced. May this season of our focus on the incarnation be that which engenders us to have more love for Christ and may it be demonstrated in our obedience to his word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment to privately think.